0: tonight we're going to look at the book of Zechariah. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. Zechariah's right at the end of the Old Testament, right before we get in to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which means that we're kind of coming to an end with our road to Emmaus as Jesus would have had the ability to teach it since he only had the Old Testament to teach. And we've got one more book after Zechariah, Malachi, and then we're done with the Old Testament, all 39 books. So uh, if we were on a road to Emmaus, we're almost there. So, with that in mind, let me start tonight. I'm going to pray and we're we'll going to talk about the book and what's in it and how we see Christ. So, let's pray. We we'll want to stop before we do anything else, like Joseph's praying. Pray that uh, you would use this book, use me, uh, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, open up our eyes to see you, Jesus. You're in here, and it's worth seeing you through the lens of Zechariah. So, we'll open our eyes to be able to see you in that that we will be able to worship you and glorify you. So use these next few minutes towards that end and pray. We love you and make a prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the book of Zechariah, uh, like I said, is right at the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the few post-exilic prophets books, which means that it's after Israel's coming out of the exile. So I don't want to take a lot of time, but we all know the story of Israel, how they came into being, Abraham was chosen, God said, I'm going to make from you a great nation, right? And we follow that through the 14 generations leading to David, King David. And then we start this period of kings in Israel. And that's after all the people of of Abraham became numerous in Egypt and were led out by Moses. And God established them as his people. And so we got a kingdom. And we know that that kingdom started to fall after Solomon with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We had the northern and southern kingdoms. They ended up uh, not doing so hot and they were sent into exile. God promised that if you don't follow me, I'll bring this into being. He promised seven years of exile, which were coming, to, uh, coming out of that and into the period where Israel's being reestablished as a nation. They're rebuilding the temple, which is really, really important, because without a temple, they don't have a central place to worship the God that they serve, right? So they need this temple, and that's a central thing going on here. Um, so that's where the book of Zechariah falls. He's accompanied by Fellow prophets Haggai and Malachi, both of them prophesy roughly at the, the same time. One after the other, Haggai kind of starts off. He's only got two chapters in his book, so it's a little bit shorter. He's a little bit more grounded with his prophecies, a little bit more uh, to the point. Zechariah kind of has his head in the clouds. He's got visions that God shows him. And the visions are meant to encourage. They're a little bit confusing, until so you start working through them and seeing the point that's being communicated with him. Then you've got Malachi, again a little bit like Haggai, a little bit more to the point on the ground. Uh, pointing out specific things for the people such as divorce um, and tithing. So, you know, kind of some practical instruction from Malachi. So Zechariah's kind of sandwiched between those two other guys. Uh, If I was to take the book, 14 chapters, and try to make sense of it start to finish, I would kind of do it like this. The first six chapters kind of are the visions so all these visions that God gives to Zechariah, and they all kind of point to a truth that God wants his people to know, and they all kind of point to the fact that God is going to rebuild the temple. He is going to reestablish uh, the, the priesthood, He's going to cleanse them. And uh, it's meant to encourage so that, you know, at this point in time where the temple is kind of faltering and failing and they're not doing so hot building it, God's given these visions so that they see a picture of what God's going to do. The middle of the book is a, uh, a period of four. Messages or sermons and then the last bulk of uh, Zechariah is kind of these two what's called an oracle or a burden so the book kind of breaks down into those three segments like that with just a few breaks of little things in between um, the end of Zechariah and Malachi leading into the New Testament the birth of Jesus we have the 400 years of silence so these are the last voices that we hear God speaking through before everything falls silent for years and then of course Jesus is born some of the key verses to me if I was to so that's kind of breaking down the book if I was to isolate a few key verses and kind of say this may be a um, a key verse to unlocking the book itself or a verse that maybe best sums up the book and what's in it one of those verses if you turn to Zechariah turn to chapter 6 with me verse 15 this is right at the tail end of those visions that I'm talking about and uh Zechariah 6:15 says this: And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So he says, those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. I think this is a central verse because it's, it's uh, what I'd call a layered truth. And Zechariah's full of layered truths. The Bible's full of layered truths. And the layer truth is where you see something physical that we can see with our eyes. But that thing actually only exists to serve, to show us the picture of the spiritual principle. An example of that would be the, fa- the sacrificial system. And we know that's a physical thing that we could see here on earth where they slaughtered the animals. But really, what, what was the purpose of that? It was to point us to the fact that we needed a sacrifice in Jesus. A spiritual principle, a spiritual truth, right? So that, that's a layer truth where you see something physical pointing to something spiritual. Right here in Zechariah 6.15 where it says those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple. It's a layer truth because you have the people of Israel being brought back from exile. And they are rebuilding the physical temple. But it's actually prophetic because Israel is not the only people that God has. He has the true Israel, the church. And we are the temple of God. And he is building the temple of God. And it's us, right? So it's a layered truth. And then if you look here, uh, you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is something that you will see over and over and over through Scripture. And Zechariah is no exception. Over and over, the Lord's making a plea Please hear me, obey me. And we're about to look at uh, the very beginning of the first six verses, points that out so clearly. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But this is, this is the Lord's appeal. Hear me and obey my voice. This is what Jesus tells Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And how, how do we know that we love him? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. She loves not a feeling. It's really not when it comes down to it. It should be a feeling, but it's not, it's not that in and of itself. Love is an action, and with God, love is obedience, and if you're not being obedient to what he's told you to do, you don't love him. That's what Jesus is pointing to. Uh, If you love me, keep my commandments. So you see this appeal throughout all scripture, and like I said, Zechariah is no different, and this verse has that attached to it, and it's a central theme in Zechariah. Don't tell me that you love me if you're not going to do what I tell you to do. I love you and I tell you what is good for you, I'll tell you what's beneficial for you. i tell you what is the best for you. Do what I tell you to do. Show me your love by your actions. And that's the appeal of the Lord. Uh, another one of the main verses that I would point to would be Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And here's a case where you've got an Old Testament verse. Again, it's prophetic. And it's uh, taken and used all throughout, or I'll say all throughout, many times in the New Testament. So Zechariah 9, 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, we see that when Jesus comes on the donkey in Matthew 20, 21, 5. And so here's uh, Zechariah 500 and. 50, 530 years before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And he spells it out word for word what's going to happen. It's a beautiful prophecy in Zechariah. Uh, And we have another one in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And that's referenced in in John chapter 19, uh, 37, of course, at the crucifixion. And we'll get to this hopefully if we have enough time at the very end, but Zechariah 14, chapter 9, the very last chapter and kind of ending the book, says this Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. And this is how the book finishes, is this declaration that the Lord will be king on the earth. And we know that's how it ends. is not the first, not the last, to point to that truth, but that is how the book ends. So with that, let's go back to the very beginning. I told you how the book breaks down. It breaks down into a series of visions at the beginning and four messages in the middle, and oracles of burdens at the end. The first six verses are a little bit of an exception. The first six verses are an introduction. You could take the first six verses of Zechariah and have nothing else, and it would be enough. It gives you everything that you need following in this book, in this first six verses. I'm going to read it for us, just six verses. you all read along if you'd like. This is what it says. In the eighth month, In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barakai, son of Ido, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds so has he dealt with us. So right here at the very beginning, you've got Zechariah appealing to the people as they're coming back out of exile and reestablishing uh, the, the temple and its ways. And they are a few years before they get started uh, offering sacrifices and getting that back going. And he's, he's appealing to them. Don't be like your fathers. We know how that ended. When the Lord warned them and warned them, I'm going to bring destruction. I'm going to let your, let your enemies overtake you. And they hardened their heart. And they did not yield to the Lord. And they were overtaken by their enemies and put into captivity. So here's Zechariah saying, this can happen again. The Lord does not change how he works. Learn from your fathers. Change. I want to point to verse 3 there, and y'all read that one with me. Zechariah 1.3, he says, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Watch this. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you. If I can open up, open up a little bit of who I am, that verse for me is like a warm blanket. It's like a comfort food for me. Because my, my mind takes me from that to the book of James, where I've got a key verse that's been a life verse for me for years and years and years. And it's the same tone, it's the same principles, it's almost the same verse. But if you want one verse that will carry you through on a daily basis, look at this verse. Return to me, and I will return to you. I'm going to take you to James real quick, because I want you all to see that. Years ago, when I was reading the book of James, I loved the book of James. And so many times I would read it, because there's just such a uh, grounded wisdom to the book of James. And... Lots of times you're, you're going to read something in James and realize that's just very practical. It's not a lot that you have to figure out what it's saying, just kind of on the nose. Uh, James 4, 4 says this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That opposes the proud, if I can put the the word picture in front of you, that means that God goes into his tent, puts on his armor, gets his shield, gets his sword, and comes out ready to do war with you. He's not just a speed bump. He's coming against you. All right, so that's the picture being portrayed there in James. God opposes the proud. And in case you're missing what that pride is, it's what we bring to the table. It's that unyielding hard heartedness that we're born with, where we say, God, I don't want to hear what you have for me. I think I can make it on my own and be more happy. I think I know better than you. That's pride. That's pride. We didn't create ourselves. We were created. The Creator knows what we need. That pride is what God comes after us with a warrior's attitude. That's that pride. So it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. It's the same verse. It's the same verse. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Let me point something out. This is not the gospel. Draw near to God is not the gospel. You see, the gospel is come. That's the gospel, come. The draw near to me, the return to me, is for those of us who belong to him. That's God's appeal for those of us who are his. Zechariah is speaking to the children of Israel. It's God's people. He's saying, return. Y'all see that distinction? This is not the gospel. This is for the people of God. God wants us to return to him, to draw near to him. Why? Both verses spell it out. What is the reward? What do we gain from drawing near to God? What do we gain from returning to him? Him. That's the reward. Literally Him. He will draw close to us. We see in this the picture of the prodigal son who leaves the father. He is the son. He is part of the family. He leaves. He lives it up in the world. Comes to his senses. Says the servant in my father's house lives better than this. He starts the return journey and the father sees him far out. And what does the father do? Runs. you're my son. Go kill the fatted calf. Put my my garments on him. Give him my signature. I'm identifying him with me. This is the picture in Scripture given to us to show us that return. Return to me. And I will see you far off and come running. This is God's promise. And it's as simple as a mathematical equation. It will happen that way. Otherwise, Scripture is a liar. If God puts that spirit in you to return to Him, and on your return He does not come running after you, Scripture's a liar. And Scripture does not lie, it only says what is true. So, right here in the beginning of Zechariah, He's appealing to the people of God. What is God's heart for you coming out of exile as you're building this temple, waiting to reestablish worship to the one true God? God's heart is that you return to Me. And the reward is that He will come to us. The reward is God Himself. There is no greater reward. Our soul is hungry for God. We were created that way. Your soul will never be satisfied more than when you are in right relationship and worship of God. Because we're human, I don't have to know you and your life and where you come from and what you dealt with today to know that that's true about you. I share Adam's DNA just like you. And for those of us in Christ, we have a new DNA. It's Jesus Christ. I know you. I know myself. You're not enough different that I can't say that that's true about you. We were created by a creator. He knows what's good for us. And so we yield to him. Does that make sense? All right, so let's move on. So this is the summation of the book of Zechariah. And I think in those first six verses, you have everything that you need to help carry you through the rest of the book and to know the tone and to know his intent in prophesying to the people of God. I told you that there's all these visions. There's eight visions that all come to Zechariah. in one night he goes to sleep. One thing I love about the book of Zechariah is with each vision, he asks, what is this? and there's an explanation given. That's not the case with every single vision. Book of Zechariah, it makes it a little bit easy for us. The explanation is given. Even with that, y'all, I'm telling you, I looked at these visions for a while before stuff started to click. This is a little bit difficult. Let me just give you an example. If y'all bear with me for just a second, I'm gonna read the first vision. I want y'all to listen and see if you can make sense of it. All right, that's what it says. Chapter 1, verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Ido, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Anybody got a clue what that is? Anybody got a clue? What, what is this vision? He looks up and he sees these horses of different colors. And he asks this, this angel of the Lord, he's like, like, what, what are they? oh, they're going out to patrol the earth. And then those people say, we patrolled the earth, they're fully at rest. What is, it's a vision. And even with him saying, what is this, and the explanation, it's still, you're trying to get your head wrapped around it. What is it? We can sit here and talk about it. Let me just sum it up the way that I understand it. There are Bibles, and look, I'm going to do a poor job, a really poor job, of trying to unpack these four. I'm just going to tell you right now. You know, this is, this is not my day job, so to speak. So what time I have to give to it and, and get what I can from it, uh, there are people that could do a much better job than this. But I'm going to give you what I understand this to mean. This first vision points to the truth that God is looking at all the earth and seeing everything that's going on. And at this point in time, the earth was somewhat at rest. There weren't these wars and uh, struggles between the nations going on. And they say, Lord, are you still going to be angry with Jerusalem? You sent them into captivity for 70 years. And they'll say, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. And I'm going to build my temple. I'm going to have my people there. That's kind of the sum up of this. And why does that matter? Because the people of God are in the middle of rebuilding the temple. They've actually come to a little bit of a standstill where, because of some uh, political powers and somebody basically bribing the zoning board, they're not able to continue with the construction. All right? That's kind of what's going on. So it's at a standstill. And if you're the people of God ready to rebuild this temple, you start to get a little bit discouraged. And you say, is this even where we need to be? Is this what God wants from us? And if you've got a guy like Zechariah coming in, speaking in the name of the Lord, saying, I've got this vision. The Lord looks around, sees everything going on. He says, yeah, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. I'm going to build my temple. You say, good enough for me. So it's an encouragement for the people, right? For Israel, it's an encouragement that they see that God sees all the nations, and it's the time that he's returning to, to Jerusalem with mercy. So it's significant for them. So if that kind of helps, like all of these visions, they're really kind of confusing and hard to unpack, they each hit home with a certain point. When you, when you boil it down, what you have left usually is, is just kind of a, a point. Some of them are layered, a lot of them, and we'll, we're going to look at that especially in chapter 3, a lot of them are layered, they've got a physical, spiritual, there's different truths packed into it, but they've all kind of got one point, that the people of Israel are going to see say, oh, I get it. That's an encouragement to me. I'm encouraged now to continue on in this work that the Lord's given me. So that's kind of the point. So the next vision is a vision of these four horns and four craftsmen. The craftsmen come in, disrupt the horns. And the point of this vision is that God is sovereign over the nations, uh, that there's no one nation. Horns, pretty much in Scripture, horns uh, prophetically are talking about nations and powers. And you've got these four craftsmen coming in and cutting them off. And so it's it's a picture of how God is sovereign over nations, right? And he's disrupting the ones that have come to power, and he's chopping them down, laying them low. That's kind of encouraging, especially if you're the people that are saying, we as Israel are trying to rebuild the temple and establish ourselves so that we can worship the Lord. And you've got these powers and these nations and these other groups that are stopping you. You say, well, actually, the Lord's sovereign over these people. I'm not going to worry. I'm just going to keep doing what the Lord asks me, right? So it kind of hits home with another point, an encouragement to the people of Israel. Third vision beginning in chapter two, uh, there's a vision of a man with a measuring line. He goes out and he starts to measure. And Zechariah says, "What's he doing?" So I'm going to uh, measure Jerusalem." Verse four, um, Run say to the young man, "Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitudes of people and livestock in it. And this is a physical and a spiritual. The physical is that literally the people who are are struggling to get this thing uh, created here on earth, it's an encouragement. No, it's going to be established. And we see that by the time Jesus comes, there's a flourishing community around the temple, right? But this is also one of those layer truths. Jerusalem's not going to have those walls. It's not going to have those barriers. Why? Because God's chosen people here on earth, Israel, and his chosen royal priesthood, the church, See, Israel's got a wall. It's got a footprint on this earth. His church doesn't. It's a layer truth. It speaks to the inclusion of the Gentiles and the whole world through, through Jesus being able to partake in God's goodness and his salvation. All right, so it's a layer truth. So that's, um, that's the third vision, the fourth vision. And each of these are a little bit sequential. The fourth vision is about a man named Joshua, not Joshua with Moses. That was Joshua, son of Nun. This is Joshua son of Shilteel or something. Um, A different Joshua. He was a priest at the time. I'm going to read some of this. It's 10 verses, I think. Y'all look at chapter 3 with me. If you don't have this one bookmarked in your Bible, bookmark this. All right? Zechariah chapter 3. This is a of truth that's powerful. We're going to spend a minute talking about it. Here's what it says. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. For they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's a of truth. On the surface, we've got what's an encouragement to the people of God as they see their priest being cleansed. God's going to reestablish the priesthood. Cleanse them so that they can work in the temple to offer sacrifices. That's on the surface. Okay, and I don't want to diminish that. There's a layer of truth here, y'all. I can't help but see salvation, language, front and center. Let me unpack. You're all smart. Y'all see this. Let me unpack it, though, for us. First, Joshua standing before the Lord. Second, Satan accusing. That's uncomfortable. Because let me point to this. Satan's right. He says, Joshua's not worthy. Joshua's a sinner. Joshua is this. Joshua's that. If I'm Joshua, I'm like, Satan's right. So let's not miss that. This is not a good time for Joshua, right? Satan is accusing rightly. He's not having to fabricate to come against Joshua. Does Joshua defend himself? God does. And on what basis? You'll watch this. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Do y'all see what just happened? God doesn't, over get, doesn't go over and say, Joshua's a good guy. He's all right. He's not nearly as bad as what you say. No, what what God does says Satan, shut your mouth. I chose him. That's all you need to know. I chose him. He's mine. Do you see that? He doesn't defend Joshua and who Joshua is. He defends his choice. He's mine. I chose him. That should be enough to silence you, Satan. This is salvation. Right? As we stand and Satan accuses us, the only hope we have is that God says, I chose him. He's mine. He belongs to me. And then what do we see God do? It says Joshua standing there with filthy garments. Let me paint the picture there. What if I told you that that language points to the fact it's kind of like if you were in an obstacle course run and the last thing you get down in that mud pit under the barbed wire and come up and you're head to toe filthy with mud? What if that was the picture? that'd be pretty bad, wouldn't it? It's not the picture. What if I told you this was like somebody who crawled through a bunch of dead animals and carcasses and um, just filth like that? Would that be worse? That'd be worse. That's not the picture. Y'all want to know what the picture is? What the word language is? Imagine that I took a porta potty that's been well used and turned it upside down. And I was covered with human waste. That's the language. That's the language being used here. It's like Joshua is covered with what comes from the toilets, with, what, with his own filth, with his own people's filth. This is the picture. Why is that powerful? We're, we're actually the ones generating that, y'all. That's our sin. We generate it, we create our filth. And what does God do? Take that off of Him. Put on good, clean garments. This is salvation. And let's not miss, it's not spelled out here, but our our garments don't just go in the trash. And the garments that we get put on, they weren't just made from scratch. Jesus is the part of the equation that we know When when we take our garments off, those filthy things, we put them on him. And he takes his clean raiment, his righteousness, and he gives it to us. And that's not spelled out here in the text, but we know salvation language. So if you want to see Christ in the book of Zechariah, he is this garment, clothing, the filthy wretch that Joshua is, that we are. Jesus is the righteousness that we're clothed with. So that's the fourth vision. Uh, Let's keep moving on. The fifth vision is a vision of a golden lampstand. There's all these, numbers are a big deal in scripture. And again, I apologize, I'm not the smarty pants that knows how to connect them all. But you see this next vision, there's a lampstand that's got Basically seven places pinched and seven wicks. And it's symbolic. If you look in Revelation, there's seven churches. Seven golden lampstands. So there's a connection there, you know. And there's these two olive trees that are feeding the oil into this lampstand. And it's showing that, um, well, let's just look at it, actually. Because God's communicating something to the people. There's this verse. In uh, chapter 4 verse 6. There's this verse. He says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So that one verse is cluing us into the truth of this vision that it is God's Spirit doing the work. It's not Zerubbabel, or Joshua, or Zechariah, or Haggai, it's none of those men. And it's not the power that they're bringing or the might that they're bringing. It's God's Spirit stirring up in those men to do this work. And by the way, this Zerubbabel, uh, I don't know if y'all talked about him yet. He's actually in the lineage of Christ. If you start flipping over and you go into the Gospel of Matthew, he's one of the names in that genealogy. Leading to Christ is one of those righteous men rebuilding the temple after the exile. It's just, just fascinating. It's a little thing. Um, but right here, this vision of the golden lampstand and the, the two olive trees feeding into it, it's a picture of God supplying his spirit to do the work. And if you're rebuilding the temple and you've come to a halt, that's an encouragement. Knowing that it's not really up to you that God is doing it. You know, so that's, that's maybe the picture of that. The next two visions, we have a vision of uh, what's called a flying scroll. It's this giant, massive scroll, and on it, it's got it's got two um, two things. Two of the commands of the Lord. Um, it basically points out two of of the two of the sins that we will find most prominent moving forward, I think, in the priesthood. Uh, theft and lying. Theft and lying. It's this massive scroll. It doesn't have all Ten Commandments on them. It's got two. And I think it's, it's showing, especially if you fast forward the 530 years and you see the priesthood, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you see Jesus coming to them, the, the things that he is condemning them for, the widow gives her might, um, you know, all that she has, the um, overturning of the tables in the temple, and Jesus saying, you've made my father's house a den of thieves, right? And then you've got the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind. They're, you know, saying that they're speaking in the name of the Lord, when they're really not. They're really not. They're serving their own ends and purposes. So I I think that that's actually the thing that God is is showing them. These are the things I don't want. So I'm just, like, telegraphing them like a plane in, in the sky, sky riding, like, huge, so you can't miss it. Don't lie, don't steal. And of course, they don't listen too well. But I think that's kind of the point of that, is that he needs uh, them as they're going to restart this temple and this worship. Those are two of the things that they can't have. And if you're a priest, you can't have that. And it's kind of following the priesthood here, coming off of Joshua and then Zerubbabel and Joshua with the uh, olive trees and gold lampstands. It's kind of in that same line of thought. These, Anyway, I don't know if that's confusing or not. I'm telling you the visions are hard. Uh, I've had to work my way through them. So, (laughs) I'm just going to move on to the next one. The next one's really weird. There's a woman in a basket. They open the lid. They say, this is wickedness. They put the lid back on. And then two women come, take the basket with wings of a stork, and fly it out. Try unpacking that one. It's weird. You got women with stork wings picking up a basket with a woman in it. Open the lid. That's wickedness. (laughs) I've listened to a lot of people teach on Zechariah. Zechariah. All of them kind of poke fun at the fact that it's a woman in the basket and it's called wicked. So I'm not going to do it. It's just kind of funny. Um, I think that the point of that, though, is God's removing this uh, this wickedness from them. It's probably the wickedness that they, they brought back with them from the exile. He's removing it. Uh, it is interesting that theme of the wicked woman kind of comes back in Revelation. Um, there's a tie-in there. We're not going to go into it. So the last vision we have is kind of real similar to the first. We've got the four... Uh, chariots this time going out and patrolling the earth and it's real similar to the, the first one and again kind of just uh, looking at how God is sovereign sees what goes on in the nations and is controlling that after those you've got a short break before we get into the four messages I'm going to read this section for us so we're in chapter 6 looking at verse 9 6-9 and the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head, head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak. That's who it is, Jehoshadak, not Shelteel, The high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, to Baja, and Jadiah. And hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you would diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And there's our verse again. So right at the end of the visions, we have this little section where they go get silver and gold from the exiles. They make a crown, they put it on the head of Joshua. And then there's all this language. This is the branch. It's a priest ruling on a throne. And this is a layer of truth because it's true of Joshua, but it's prophetic of Jesus who is our high priest and who is our king and who does sit on a throne and who is building a temple not from rocks on this earth, but a true temple, which is us, right? So we've got this prophetic language ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. Following that same verse that we started out with, those who are far off shall come and help build the temple. And with the understanding of it, not being just a physical place here on earth, but the people of God, that verse means a whole lot more. So after this, we've got, this is a cool section we're coming into, actually. We've got the four messages. The first one starting in chapter 7 Go something like this: People come and they say, "Hey, we've got that feast thing, where we're supposed to mourn because the temple was destroyed, but we're rebuilding the temple. So, do we still have to celebrate that? Does that make sense?" So that's what they're asking. Okay. The response is, "Well, who are you doing it for?" All right. We'll read it. That's that's basically what what happens, but. In the, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. If you're keeping up with dates, good for you. They run right by me. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord, of hosts and the prophets, and here it is, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, "When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it from me that you fasted?" So kind of what's going on here, if, if I'm to try to unpack that, is God's kind of communicating, "Were you doing that out of duty, or were you doing out of a heart that saw your sin and saw my anger towards it?" You know, was it out of that that recognition of what's behind it? Or were you just putting your head down, putting your arms by your sides and marching and, and doing this thing that I told you to do? Now, for the people at the time, this is a real question. And God kind of reprimands them. But if you followed my line of thought in this, there's actually a really big point for us. How many times do we do the thing that we're supposed to do not unto the Lord, How many times do we walk into our church and we sit down and we get up and we leave and if God was to speak to us, he's going to say, what were you doing that for? What was on your mind? What was your conviction? Where was your heart? Were you there to worship me? What were you doing it for? That's kind of wrapped up in this passage right here. For us, that's the application, right? So God cares. He wants that center of attention. He wants what we do to be for Him. So let's guard ourselves of that. And of course, I'm pointing to church. I don't don't know what you think about church. But here's here's the takeaway from that. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all to the glory of God. That's simple enough and yet extremely hard. For you students, if you're going to wake up tomorrow and go to school, do it to the glory of God. Don't go to school like somebody who is still in the flesh would go to school. Go to school like somebody who has been regenerated by the power of God into new life. Okay? And I know there's a lot unsaid in that. For those of us who have come out of school and we're in jobs when you wake up in the morning, don't do it as somebody in the flesh. Say, I'm going to do this as unto the Lord. I'm going to do it as honestly and ethically and, and most God-glorifying way that I know how. And especially, like, let, let's just agree, if we're going to call what we're doing, like coming to church, as something for the Lord... Let's make sure our heart reflects that. And I'm I'm speaking out of guilt. I'm not lining y'all up and trying to punish you. I'm saying I recognize this for me. This is me preaching to myself. I walk in and out so many times and I think, what was I doing? Was I actually observing that for the Lord? And I know my heart better than y'all do and I'm telling you it's discouraging sometimes. But I can see the truth in Scripture here. And I might can, it sometimes be smart enough to yield to that. And I want, I want to, you know? I want to be able to give that to the Lord. So that's the first message. The second message uh, in chapter 7, kind of 8 through 14. It's an appeal to show justice, kindness, uh, mercy. It, it, it's a warning. Kind of at the beginning of Zechariah, we saw this. It says, look at what your fathers did. Don't do what they did. Um... Chapter 7's got one of the most scary verses in the entire book. It has got one of the most terrifying verses. It's one of the most terrifying verses in the whole scripture. I want you all to turn there with me. Chapter 7, verse 13. As he's going through this, he's making this appeal to show kindness, mercy, judge rightly, don't do what your fathers did. We come to this verse, 713. As I called... And they would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord. You want to talk about something really scary. It's when that ark door shuts, and you're outside, and it starts raining. And you're not getting in. God's not opening that door once his judgment has fallen And God does not change how he works. There is a terrifying truth in that verse that should scare us out of our minds that maybe, maybe gives us a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Maybe that verse terrifies us out of our humanity into saying, this is serious stuff. God does not play There is a time where God told somebody, I called to you and you didn't hear me. So when you call to me, I'm not going to hear you. Can you imagine any more terrifying state for any human to be in than that? Where God says, you can call all you want, I will not hear. It's coming on, on deaf ears. Right? It's a terrifying verse. Continuing on, and I know I've gone a long time, we've got two more messages. Uh, we're followed by two what's called burdens or oracles. The first one's uh, from chapter 9 through 10 into 11. The last one's from 12 to 13 to 14. And I've gone later than I meant to, so we're not going to unpack those as much. But kind of here's what's going on. We've got the visions. Uh, we've got the, the messages when we get to the burdens and the oracles there's a lot of Christ language laced in there's a lot of in the first three the nine the ten and the eleven it kind of goes something like this in chapter nine you've got this picture of judgment on Israel's enemies a real common theme through scripture Uh, nine nine through thirteen you've got the coming king of Zion and I love this this is how this language goes Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. I love that language, y'all. And of course, that's talking, uh, that's the, the layered truth. You know, if you go back to Exodus, when Moses is throwing the blood over the people and he's giving them the law and the people are saying, we agree to keep the words of this law and Moses is throwing that blood at the, as the covenant. But then we see Jesus take this drink. This is my blood. The new covenant given for you. This is the blood of the covenant which we partake in. We take in that life blood of Jesus Christ and are changed. And we enter into covenant with him because of what he has done. Love this, y'all. Chapter 9 kind of finishes up with just this proclamation that the Lord will save his people. Chapter 10 You've got the picture of the restoration of Judah uh, and Israel uh, in the first few verses. You've got we'll just read it verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock the house of Judah and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone. That's Christ. From him the tent peg and from him the battle bow. From him every ruler. All of them together. Chapter 10 is an indictment on the shepherds. The whole chapter just blasts them. And if you want to find Christ in it, uh, Christ is not the shepherd that will lead you astray. He is not the shepherd that will use you. He is not the the shepherd that uh, slaughters you for his own purpose. He is, instead of slaughtering you, he goes to the slaughter. He is the shepherd that lays down his life for the flock. So as we're going through chapter 10 just this indictment on the shepherds of Israel and their foolishness and how they have failed at their job we see Christ as the one true shepherd and if you're his sheep you hear his voice and you follow going, so that's the first uh, the first burden 9, 10 and 11 the last burden uh, 12, 13 and 14 I know y'all are tired. I know this is a lot. Thank y'all for bearing with me through this. It's a long book. There's a lot of very confusing stuff in here. Uh, Chapter 12 kind of goes through this process of looking at the people of Israel basically being backed into a corner by all the surrounding nations, and then at the last minute, God bringing salvation to the people and saving them. Kind of in this, this way that everybody has to say, That had to be God, because Israel didn't do it. You know, so that's kind of chapter 12, is this uh, look at that. And I love how 13 starts off following that. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, in chapter 12, as the Lord is delivering them, this Now the picture of salvation in chapter 12 As the Lord's delivering Israel in the, in the middle of it, towards the end, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day... The mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad, Ramon, in the plain Megiddo. So what we have is the nation of Israel in a state of mourning as they look at Christ. And they say, that's the one that we pierced. But that's our Savior. And then chapter 13 begins with a river, a fountain, opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this is salvation where they're being backed into a corner. The Lord delivers them and they look up. They say, that's Jesus. That's the Savior, the one whom we pierced. And you see that result. So 13 follows that same pattern of after they've seen Jesus, after that fountain has been opened, they've been cleansed. You see all this stuff happening, the idolatry in the land being cut off. And then uh, chapter 14, we end Zechariah. Chapter 14 is looking ahead. Uh, at the coming king, and that's where when we first started, we, we looked at that, verse 9, where it says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one, and this is how it, it ties up with just this picture of that God is going to come, he's going to rule, that Israel is going to worship the Lord, that the other nations are going to uh, come and worship the Lord with Israel, and it's not without a price. If you read chapter 14, it's not all fun and games and gummy bears. There's, there's a lot of terrible stuff that goes on, but in it, the people of God return to the Lord and worship him. And when they do it, the other surrounding nations are blessed, fulfilling the prophecy uh, in Genesis 12 when God says to Abraham, and you shall all the nations be blessed. It's through Christ. Christ unites all the nations, not just Israel. And everybody comes. They say, God is God. He is who he says he is. He's the one true God. We're returning to him. And so that's how the book of Zechariah finishes up. It's a really confusing book. If you were building a temple and had kind of come to a little bit of a time of trouble, this would be really encouraging. This would be really encouraging to have somebody come and say, hey, God gave me these visions. The Lord sees what's going on in the nations. He's sovereign over that. He's disrupting the nations. Uh, the Lord remembers his people. I don't know if I mentioned that or not. Zechariah... Um, the name means the Lord remember, remembers. That's what the name Zechariah means. And I think it's very pertinent because you've got, not only does God remember the sins of the fathers, right? When they're sent into exile, he remembers that over and over. He warns them, don't be like that. But he also remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. The promise to bring them out of exile after 70 years. And God remembers the, promise, the prophecy to send a Savior God has not forgotten. And as we get close to this period of silence, these are the words that they're hanging on to the coming day of the Lord before Jesus is born and they recognize Him as the one true Savior of the world. So let's pray. Lord, we do not do Your Word justice at all. And there is so much more truth in here than we've been able to cover tonight. Would I want to pray for us in this room that the words in chapter one and verse three would be those words that carry us through moment to moment to moment that we would be serious about returning to you. And that we would know that you're the reward of that that we would be able to recognize in our soul the desire we have for you and you would give us the wisdom to see that nothing else satisfies that you alone satisfy us it would give us the ability to see you for who you are and not for who we make you grab us by the ears, bring us face to face with yourself and we would be able to see you that would change us like Moses coming down from the mountain emitting that light, well, that we would be changed by being in your presence and the result would be our heart becomes more hungry for you and that a taste of you is not enough Lord, you have the power to do that in our lives. We are hungry for it. Do it. Do not leave us to try to satiate our hunger with the things of this world. Make that prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.